Last week, Pastor Steve Warner began um, uh, 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 the next leg of our Here to There series. Uh, we shifted from uh, the question of what do I do when my world turns upside down into the question of how do I have a heart that looks like Jesus Christ. And he began uh, this series that we're now on, this journey that we're now on for the next several weeks of of. How do I have a heart that's reflective uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ? He used King David as his example. I'm going to continue to use King David as our example this morning. So this is really like part two of a series that began uh, last week. Uh, Having a right heart is incredibly important um, before the Lord. Uh, It's talked about a lot in Scripture. In fact, if you were to go to Isaiah 29, 13, what's identified there for us is the problem of having a distant heart. The prophet Isaiah says this, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up of rules taught by men. And basically then Isaiah goes on to say in verses 15 and 16, if if that's how you come to God, if you're distant, if you're you're far off from God, this is what's going to happen. Woe to you, woe to those who go to great debts to hide their plans from the Lord and do their work in darkness and think, who sees us? Who will know? You turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. So what is formed, say to the one who formed it, you did not make me? Can the pot say to the potter, you know nothing? And so what Isaiah was saying here is if you're distant from God and you think, just because I don't see God, he doesn't see me, you are utterly deceived. Years ago when we lived in the country, we had a, a, a dog. Her name was Mega. We named her that for a reason. She was a great Pyrenees, and she weighed 140 pounds. She looked just like that. Beautiful dog. And uh, they're called the gentle giant because they're really good with people, but they're a great guard dog. They're not good with other dogs. If other dogs come on the property, they get really mad and upset. She chased a lot of dogs off our property. Um, Anyway, Mega grew up with a couple of small dogs. We had a miniature dachshund and we had a Maltese. They're more like cats than dogs. So she grew up thinking she was a small dog. She had no idea that she was humongous. And she was an outside dog because of her fur and all that. I don't know if you know anything about Great Pyrenees, but they, their fur goes everywhere. I remember moving to Williston, and she was in our moving van with uh, Nate and I. And we were moving. It was like 90 degrees, so we had the windows down in the moving van. Oh, my goodness. It was like a snow, uh, snowstorm in there from her fur going everywhere. It was in your mouth and nose. It was really quite an enjoyable trip. But... Anyway, every now and then, Mega would get into the house. She wanted to get in the house. She always thought she was missing out by not being in the house. And we would immediately go, no, 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 you, need, you can't be in the house. And we'd try to get her out of the house. You know what she would do? She would shove her head behind the piano. And she thought, if I can't see you, you can't see me. <laughs> she actually thought that. She fit in that little teeny spot because she would get her big old humongous head in there. And then we, I'd look and I said, you're so pathetic. Your huge body is hanging out here, and you think, I can't see you, you know? And I would drag her out, and it was always a little bit of a, of a, of a you know, battle because she wanted to be in the house with us. And this is what Isaiah is saying to people. You think, because you don't see God, he doesn't see you. You stick out. He sees you. He knows you. You can't hide from him. He sees your heart. He knows what's going on inside of you. You know, heart problems like Isaiah talked about in Isaiah 29 aren't limited to the Old Testament. In the New Testament, in Revelations chapter 2 and 3, the uh, uh, apostle John, given these words of God to the New Testament church, says specifically to the church in Ephesus, he says this. He basically says to them, you know what? 
you've lost your first love of me. And then he goes on to say to that church in Ephesus, repent and do the things you formerly did or basically you're in trouble. And that's once again addressing the heart of the people of God. So what we're looking at here, what Steve looked at last week, what I'm looking at uh, this morning with you is how do we have a heart that's right before our Lord. And King David is a great example of how we do that. I'm going to give you three review points from Pastor Steve's message because it goes right into what I'm going to talk about this morning. So first of all, a heart for God is often developed in the furnace of the desert. Oftentimes when we're in troubling circumstances, when life's been stripped down and we can't solve the problem anymore, you know what? We begin to realize who we are and who God is and our desperate need of him. So oftentimes the right heart for God is developed in the furnace of the desert. Amen? Nobody wants to be in the desert, but the desert is often a good place for the heart. Secondly, a heart for God is tempered by teachableness. In other words, as the people of God, you and I need to be humble and teachable. And looking at life as school and learning what God wants us to learn. Being malleable, being pliable in the Lord and, and, and never thinking we know everything. We have to continue to be humbly following our God. And thirdly, a heart for God is zealous in worship. I love the, the picture that's painted by King David as they bring the Ark of the Covenant into, into Israel. And he dances before it basically in his underwear. I mean, he, he was undignified. And, he, and, and, and that we see that he had this zealous passion for the things of God. Now, much is written in the Bible about King David, and much of the Bible was penned by King David under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. David is the full package. He's a leader, he's a prophet, he's a worshiper, and he has a heart after God. And so this morning, I'm going to pick up where Pastor Steve left off last week. We're going to go to 2 Samuel chapter 9 here, and we're going to see that something takes place here that's Common yet very uncommon for that era. King David wants to find out if there's any relatives left still alive from the former King Saul. Now, normally in that era, in that time, the reason that a new king went hunting for the former king's relatives was to kill them because they were a potential threat to his reign and his rule. So he was going to just get rid of the competition. But David had an entirely different motivation for looking up the former relatives of King Saul. And therefore, it makes it into the Bible, and it is a story that's utterly amazing, full of mercy and compassion. You know, when you have God on your heart, you are an entirely different person, amen? And you're supposed to be full of mercy and compassion and forgiveness of others. Listen what happens here. I'll read to you, uh, read about it uh, to you in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. David asks, Is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, Jonathan was Saul's son. Now, there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, is there no one still alive in the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, there's still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he, the king asked. Ziba answered, he is at the house of Makar, in the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Makar, son of Amiel. When, get this name, Mephibosheth. Can you say that? Mephibosheth? I want you to say that with me. Okay, because it's such a cool name, Mephibosheth. I can't always say it. Here we go. I'm going to say a 
count to three and you want, I want you to say it with me. One, two, three. Mephibosheth. I feel like I should say God bless you because you sound like you all just sneezed. <laughs> Mephibosheth. Okay, so this is the son of, uh, uh, of, of Jonathan, the son of Saul. And he came to David and he bows down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore you, uh, to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Now, I find this fascinating, this exchange. First of all, that David didn't know about uh, Mephibosheth. Um, he, he, he's like best friends with Jonathan. If you ever want to do a message on friendship relationship as a pastor, you go to David and Jonathan. It reminds me of some of my, my son interaction I had when they were little. They'd play all day long with a little friend, and I'd say, well, who is that little boy? I don't know. Where'd he come from? Just kind of showed up. You don't know his name? No. Did it not occur? What did you call him all day? Nothing. And I think, yep, this is David and Jonathan. This is boys growing up. He doesn't know Jonathan's son. I find that fascinating. It's a side light. Don't, don't take that too hard or anything to, to heart too much. But here's what, what I want you to understand about what we see in David. He had a heart for God, and that means it was rich in mercy. A heart for God means you're rich in mercy. It means you're just rich in mercy. Imagine being Mephibosheth, the most powerful man in the country has summoned you to come to him. You know your grandfather tried to kill him multiple times. When he bows down, he might have thought, this might be the last time I ever bow down like this. I might be just dead here. It might be my last act. He's been living in exile. He's been an outcast. The words of David must have been just something that rocked his world. Eat at my table. Mephibosheth, wow. He has an ass grasp of the situation. He said, why would you do that? I'm like, I'm like a dead dog, you know. Why would you do that? Because David's heart was captured by God and it was rich in mercy. It reminds me of what we have in our God today through Jesus Christ. Because you and I are undeserving of the mercy God has extended to us. And like David went on the hunt, for a relative of Saul, God went on the hunt for us. He wasn't content just to leave us in our status of disconnection from him and our status of sinfulness, but he sent his son to hunt for you and me. Do you realize that? And to extend to you and I great mercy. If we all believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, if we'll come to him, then God says, if you'll just do that, instead of being dead dog meat, so to speak, you can eat at my table with me, and you can dine with me. And we see in David kind of a foreshadowing what we have in Jesus Christ. Amen? It's amazing. But what an incredible picture we see of, Dave, of David here in mercy. Every meal David had, he stared across at, at this grandson of the king who tried to kill him multiple times. Every meal he had, he looked at that boy and he extended mercy to him. And I, I, I just see that's what God does for us through Christ, our Savior. He continually extends to us mercy. In order for that to take place in David's heart, of course, he had to have God on the throne of his heart. Listen, if you're a follower of God, you should be extending mercy. Amen? Amen? You should be giving mercy out freely. It should be part of the package of being a follower of God. The same heart that beat in David is meant to beat in you and I, too. We're supposed to extend that kind of mercy 
Here's a life application point then for you. Who in your life, listen now, this is where it gets difficult. Who in your life does not deserve mercy but needs it from you? Think on that person. Think on that relative. Who in your life does not deserve mercy but needs that from you? God is calling you today to extend to that person mercy because you are a Christ follower. Amen? Well, that was pretty weak. But I'll take it. So we're supposed to extend forgiveness. We're supposed to extend mercy if we have a heart that's like David's that, that beats after Jesus Christ, that looks like Jesus Christ. Let's turn now the table a little bit because at times we need to have mercy extended to us personally and forgiveness extended to, to us as people. And, and I think sometimes when we read a story like we have about King David, we can begin to say, well, he's exceptional and he's one of a kind. And we kind of blow off his story, say, that can never be my reality because I'm flawed and I'm weak and I don't do very well. I'm not, I'm not a man or woman after God's own heart like King David. But you know what I love about the Bible? One of the things I love about the Bible, I love a lot of things about it, is it never sugarcoats stories. It gives them to us in their reality. And the same thing is done with David because now if you continue and read on about King David in, in 2 Samuel, you'll see that he really blows it big time. But yet, because he has a heart for God, he's restored. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, things begin to turn on, uh, for King David, turn nasty. Up to that point, everything's been going well. He's been doing good. He's known as one of the greatest kings ever. And despite all that's been given to him, he wants something he ought not to have. He wants another man's wife. He's tempted by her and he uses his position to get her see when kings would go off to war david elected to stay home for some reason he noticed a beautiful woman you can always remember her because her name is bathsheba and she was taking a bath right bathsheba the bath taker so he's out in his palace looking around and he sees a few houses away this beautiful woman taking a bath on the roof of her house he should have just turned away right First look's not, not wrong. That's temptation. Second look is lust. Should have turned away. But instead, he inquires, who is this woman? I want her. Well, he's told and he's informed that's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, Uriah the Hittite was one of the 30 mighty men of King David talked about. He fought with King David. He's a man of renown. He was with King David in the desert. And, and he, David's told, this is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. One of the mighty fighting men. One of the men of value. And in spite of all that relationship, David still calls for her. Sleeps with her. Sins. Gives in to temptation. And in that moment, his life changed forever. Consequences came in that would forever haunt him. He dishonored God. He shamed Bathsheba. And my goodness, he broke relationship with Uriah the Hittite. One of his faithful mighty men. Now it gets complicated. Sin often does. Bathsheba informs King David, I'm pregnant. Oh no. Uriah's off fighting the war that David ought to be at. So David comes up with a scheme. I'm going to get Uriah back here and hopefully he'll sleep with his wife and think the child's his. Well, he brings Uriah back from the, from the front and Uriah is such a dedicated, loyal person to the other soldiers that he would not go in with his wife. He said, I can't have pleasure while the other guys are fighting. 
So he won't go into his wife. So, oh, no, now what do I do? King David doesn't know what to do. So you know what he does? He writes a letter to the commander at the front, and he, and he sends that letter with Uriah, this mighty, valiant, fighting man, this faithful servant who was with him in the desert, who was known as one of the most valiant men in Israel. He gives this guy a letter, basically his death warrant, and he says to the commander, when you go against the enemy, pull away and leave Uriah exposed so that he's slain and killed. And Uriah, being a man of integrity, didn't even look at the letter. He just gives it to the commander, not realizing I'm giving him my death sentence. And the commander carries out the wishes of David, and Uriah dies. And a few weeks later, David takes Bathsheba in as his wife. You can't write soap operas like this. This is nasty stuff, isn't it? And David, I think, thought he got away with it for a moment. Listen, brothers and sisters, we have an amazing ability as people to rationalize away our sin, don't we? And David, we see doing that. And right now, what's going on is his, his heart, the throne of his heart's kind of up for grabs because he's in a bad place. God knows this. God knows this. And so God sends Nathan the prophet to David. I love this story. And Nathan the prophet comes to David kind of through the back door. He tells him a story. He says, David, listen to the story. There was this wealthy man. He basically had all kinds of flocks of, of lambs and sheep, just multiple flocks and all that. And, and a guy came to visit him, but instead of slaughtering one of his little lambs for the meal, what he does is he uses his power and his position, and he takes a pet lamb from a poor neighbor, the only lamb that little neighbor had. He takes that pet lamb, and he slaughters it instead. David's infuriated. At the, at, the, at the injustice done here. And now he's set up for the word of the Lord. And Nathan says to him in 2 Samuel chapter 12, listen to these words. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the land, the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if this had not uh, been too little, I would have given you even more. Why do you despise the word of the Lord? By doing what is evil in his eyes. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. You killed him, David. Now therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I'll take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I'll do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. And what we see here is this, cause and effect. The consequences of having a heart that's far from God, that disconnects from God, the consequences of sin. And David did indeed suffer family strife because of this. Terrible things happened to his household. And I love David's response to Nathan in verse 13, though. That's what I want to zoom in on this morning. Because he could have basically said, who are you, Nathan? I'm going to just kill you. I'm not going to listen to you. But here's what happened. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against God. I have sinned against the Lord. You're right. And this is what we got to understand when we do something wrong, okay? A heart for God will see that sin is against God himself and will confess it. So if we're going to have a heart that follows up to God, first of all, it's got to be rich in mercy to others. Amen, right? But also we got to understand this. When we do something wrong ourselves, we just got to own up to it. We just got to admit it, right? We got to be transparent and authentic. Listen to this little saying. It's a little ditty, but I, I, I like this saying. 
Sin will always take you farther than you want to go. That's what happened to David. His sin took him to places he did not want to go. It started out with adultery, and it ended up with murder. Sin will always take you farther than you want to go, cost you more than you want to pay, cost David peace in his household the rest of his days. Cost him a lot more than he could recognize at that moment. And it'll keep you longer than you want to stay. It's a friend that does not want to go away. You ever have one of those friends? They come for a while. I'll be here for a couple of days. After a month, you're going, it's time to go. That, that's, that's what sin's like if you don't address it. It's a friend that stays a lot longer than you want them to stay. David, you know, had suffered terribly when he was in this unrepented state of sin with Bathsheba because sin will always take you farther than you want to go. It will always cost you more than you want to pay and it will always stay longer than you want it to stay. And he embraced this word from Nathan. But listen to what he says in Psalm 51 because this is David's confession while he was in this kind of turmoil point in his life when he, he knows he's in trouble. Listen to his heart uh, here at Psalm 51. He says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you're right in your verdict and justify when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desire faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you've crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. This is David's cry because of his sin with Bathsheba. All right? This is David's words of what was going on in his soul during this time. And Nathan was like a welcomed person to kind of get it out and kind of get it dealt with. Here, here's what we got to understand. If we're going to have a heart that beats after God, if we're going to really be one that's like King David, and if we're going to have the attitude of the Lord Jesus Christ, we got to be willing to be authentic and real with ourselves. And the components of confession here that David goes through are really important for us to understand. We have to be people who have genuine sorrow for our brokenness. Amen? We, we genuinely have to be sorrowful for our condition of wrongness. Our condition of resistance to God, our sin, whatever you want to put in there for a phrase. There needs to be a genuine reckoning of who you are as a person. A genuine sorrow. It's a good sorrow because godly sorrow leads to repentance and leads to restoration. But get this, if you're just sorry for what you've done and the consequences, that does not lead to, to the, the repentance that you need to have. You're sorry for the consequences. But godly sorrow, it's, it's, it's sorrowful for what, what you're doing to God and his reputation and what it's doing to your own spirit. So you have to have this genuine sorrow. You have to have the mission of sin in your life. You have the mission of sin. Um, you have the mission of the condition you're in. Amen? I don't know, but you, daily I go, boy, I fall short. Do you, do you ever think that? I say sharp words to my wife. I think, oh, why do I do that? I get irritated with people. We were at, uh, at Tulip Time in Pella, Iowa the last couple of days. And man, alive, there's like 100,000 people crammed in this little town and That'll test you. I thought, is this fun? I'm thinking, do I enjoy this? I don't think so. But I'm here with all my grandkids and, you know, my, my sons and daughters, and that part's fun. But boy, what a zoo. And I found myself thinking, okay, be polite. Let these 85 people go first. 
because it's not one. Stand at the corner. You're on vacation. Be patient, right? I'm doing lots of self-talk, you know, and when I'm driving, don't be too aggressive. Don't kick into city mode like when you grew up. Just, you know, drive like you're in a small town. And, you know, it's just kind of like you have to really be aware of what's going on in your life. And then there's got to be a desire for forgiveness and restoration. David just longed to be, uh, you know, restored in the Lord. So here's my application question, life application question today. What do you need to confess to God? What do you need to confess to God? David reached the point in his life where he stopped running and he ran into God. He stopped running from God, he ran to God. When we do that, that's confession done rightly. We stop running from God and we run to God and we admit who we are with tears of brokenness in our lives. That puts our heart in a good place. Amen? A good place for God to be on the throne of our hearts. And we can't be people who gloss over sin in our lives or, 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 or uh, unfaithfulness. We have to be honest. And I think for some of us, there comes a point where you just need to cry out, God, have mercy on me. Through Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, have mercy on me. I've been resistant to you. You need to cry out like that. I've been resistant to you. I've been putting myself on the throne of my own heart, and that's an utter sin. That's wrong. That's wrong for me to do that. You have to say those words. Don't make them soft. Don't make it easy on you. Be who you need to be before God. Be honest. Amen? And say, if God's not been on the throne of your heart, say, because like Maggie stuck her head behind that panel, the only one she was fooling was herself. And when we're resistant to God and we don't admit who we are before God, the only one we fool is ourselves. Amen? And so there has to become a point where, like King David and Nathan comes to you, you just have to say, ah, that is me. That's who I am, and I admit it. I admit to my condition. And God, I need you. I need your mercy. David desperately needed the ministry of a Nathan. A lot of us need the ministry of a Nathan in our life, amen? I think we want to be the Nathan to others, but oftentimes we need to be the one receiving the word from the Nathan, amen? And be willing to have a receptive heart like David had. We must be ready to receive this ministry of Nathan. I remember years ago, it was about 35 years now, so when I say years ago, I should clarify that. I had begun to work uh, as an engineer, and a fellow engineer came to me and said, hey, I know that you're a Christ follower. I can see that you are. You, you read your Bible and do all this, but you know your mouth's kind of foul at times. And I had only been a Christian, a Christ follower for, you know, several years at that point in my life. And, um, yeah, I had kind of a, a mouth problem. Anybody relate to me on that? Come on now. I know some of you. I hear some of you. Come on. And so he came to me, and you know my first thought was, who are you? I could tell you about 18 things you need to fix. And God just convicted me. Boom, just like that. Listen to him. I'm sending him to you. Get your mouth under control. I didn't know the language, but that was the ministry of a Nathan to me right then. From a most unlikely source. We have to be willing and humble and have teachability and submit and hear the word of the Lord, even when it comes to us from unlikely sources. So I want to ask you this question. Is there any place right now in your life where someone is trying to extend to you the ministry of Nathan and you are stubbornly resistant? Is there anybody in your life, any situation, where maybe there's a ministry of Nathan happening, but you're just stubbornly resistant? Maybe God's prompting you to have the ministry of Nathan to somebody. If, it is, if that be the case, you be careful. 
endured in the Lord with humility and without judgment. Amen? Do it rightly. But let me ask you one other question. How would your life change if God were truly on the throne of your heart? How would that change your life? What would it look like if, if God were really reigning in your heart and you were really truly extending mercy to other people just like David did uh, uh, to this grandson of King Saul who tried to kill him multiple times, just like David did when he was in sin, he humbly received the word of Nathan. How would it look if God was on the throne of your heart in that way? How would that change your life? As we close in prayer, I want to make it uh, about praying that God's on the throne of our hearts today, okay? And I want to encourage you, if you need to do some business with God after service today, we have a prayer team over here that will gladly pray with you. Uh, the Bible talks about this idea that it's good for us to confess to one another and pray for one another. The prayer of a righteous person availeth much. So take advantage of that if you need to do some business, all right? So I'll just make sure that you know that that option is available. Um, I'm going to close with a word of prayer here. And I want to just note this for you. Um, we're going to enter into a time of communion right after that. And uh, there are some New Testament promises there that I put in the bulletin for you or had Amber put in the bulletin for you so that you can meditate on that as you, as you prepare your heart for communion. So that's what that's there for. Um, so let's pray right now, and then we'll enter into this time of communion together. Would you bow your heads, please? Lord God, I want to just uh, offer up a prayer that, first of all, we, like King David, would have a merciful heart. Um, we look like you, Jesus, when we have a merciful heart. You were on that cross, and you extended mercy all over the place. Uh, you are just our, our merciful high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses, Lord God. And we just praise you today, and we know we look awful lot like you, Jesus, when we have you on the throne of our heart in such a way that we will extend mercy to those who don't deserve it. And also, Lord, like King David, on the flip side of that, when he had done something wrong, uh, he was willing to receive the ministry of a Nathan. And he was humble and, and, and submissive, Lord. And because of that, I, I'm convinced, Lord, that you, you, you restored him on account of those kinds of things. And Lord, I think for you, uh, for you to really reign in our hearts, and really to be the, on the throne of our hearts, we too have to be willing to receive the ministry of a Nathan in our lives. And it will come from unlikely sources at times, Lord. They help us to, to just be uh, in tune with your Holy Spirit. And when a word is spoken to us, where we start feeling that conviction, Lord, instead of putting it aside and blowing it off, help us to embrace it as, as a means that you want to use to transform us into Christ-likeness. So God, we just love you today. We thank you for the example of King David. And we pray that we'd have a heart like his, Lord, so that, Lord Jesus, we look like you. That's where we want to go in this Here to There series, Jesus. We just want to end up looking like you. May it be so by your power and by your infilling Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, amen.